first and foremost in salvation. And then, Father, in the Christian life to grow and mature and become more like Christ. But, Father, we thank you for your grace in everyday life. You do give us pain, but you also give us healing. You do, you do give us rain, but you also give us growth and produce. So, Father, uh, you are in control and you are a God of grace and blessing. And now we ask you, Father, that you would teach us from this very, very important section of Scripture at least as far as the history of Israel goes. And we'll thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, last week we talked about there's a difference between practice and then the actual game. Well, I guess if we're going to use that analogy, we're down to the last two minutes, all right? Two-minute drive is what it is. It's... It, we're here. We knew we were coming here from the very beginning of 1 Kings. We're coming here to the captivity of Judah. We already know that Israel has been taken into captivity, Israel being the northern kingdom as it was so named. And now, finally, Judah is going into captivity. We have a few things that I'd like to cover before we get into that, uh, but... Anyway, uh, this, is, this is where we are. We're at the last two minutes. We're going to see it happen before our eyes. All right, so if you take a look at our notes, there's something there that it may surprise you, and that is Roman numeral one is Lachish, the last fortified city. And if you're looking at just kings alone, you're not really figuring this out. But if you've studied the book of Jeremiah, you know that Lachish is very important. Basically, there are two cities that remain fortified before Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. Those two cities are Azekah and Lachish. And of course, Lachish is perhaps the most famous for several reasons. One is because Lachish was the very last city to go. The other reason is, is because archaeologically, they have found some writings in a letter. It's called the Lachish letter. And it talks about Azekah being destroyed, and they were coming for Lachish. And then, then they were going to go for Jerusalem. So... Uh, the timing here is sometime during Zedekiah's reign, probably very close to when they came to Jerusalem. Now, we, we know that they fought. Nebuchadnezzar fought and, and built ramps and sieged for two and a half years at the wall. But at the end of that, of course, which is what we're going to see tonight, they broke through the walls. But before we get to that part, let's take a look at Lachish. By the way, another reason is, is if you go over to Israel, most tours will take you to the city of Lachish. So it's just very, very interesting. So I'm going to begin with Lachish before we get to Judah's activity. I'll ask you if you would, turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 34.
Jeremiah chapter 34. By the way, I have a lot of PowerPoints tonight, a lot of PowerPoint pictures. So we haven't had a whole lot in the past few weeks, I suppose, but I'm definitely making up for it tonight. All right. In Jeremiah chapter 34, now we want to get to verse 7 specifically, but uh, we'll, we'll go through this. Jeremiah 34.1 says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army with all the kingdoms of the earth that were under his dominion and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. We're going to see that prophecy. You will not escape from his hand. We're going to see that prophecy fulfilled. For you will surely be captured and delivered into his hand. And you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye. And he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. By the way, I had mentioned before, this is a bit of irony. And we'll talk about that at the end of tonight's lesson. Verse 4. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you will not die by the sword. In other words, he will not be killed at that time. You will die in peace. And it's not a very peaceful life that he lives after he goes into captivity, but it means of natural causes. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you, and they will lament for you. Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. The idea of spices means a royal funeral. So Zedekiah, even though he's going into captivity and a few other things that are going to happen to him, he will die of natural causes and he will have a royal funeral. Verse 6. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the remaining cities of Judah, that is just two, Lachish and Azekah, for they alone remained as fortified cities among the cities of Judah. So I don't know if you've ever seen a movie where uh, in the distance, you can hear the drums and the marching of the soldiers, and they're going from one city to the next. Well, these are the last two. The first one is Azekah, and I'd like to just spend a moment or two talking about that. Uh, I had an opportunity to visit Azekah. Uh, if you can read that there, you see Jerusalem, and then it's south of Jerusalem, and then Lachish is south of that. Uh, we had lunch at the 
Azeka Recreation Area. So we would have lunch every day, sandwiches, and we would go some really neat place to have it. Well, we went to Azeka. Uh, and we, we were there, benches, that's kind of what Israel looks like there. Um, and um, one of the things that, that I remember is that while we were eating, we saw marmots, marmots. They resemble rock chucks or groundhogs, uh, but they had marmots there. And so that, you know, I, I really wanted to go and see wildlife there. I mean, beyond and besides everything else. But I heard all about the, the wildlife that was there, the, the rams and the ibex. It was so hot, I didn't see any wildlife, but I did see a marmot. So that was kind of interesting. Anyway, there's some of the members of our group uh, eating lunch. Um, there was a little trail there. It kind of lets you know what some of the terrain of Jerusalem is or of Azeka. Uh, it has nice trees, shade, and that's why it's a recreation area. Um, there's a look up on top of Azeka, and it's very interesting what you can see from up there. Uh, we got up on top, and we had a Bible study up there, and uh, you can look out over the countryside, and you can see some of the, the other cities and the places. And But one of the places that's right by Azekah is the Valley of Elah. This is where David and Goliath had their battle. Where? Well, if you, if you can see there, the, the writing says the Valley, the Valley of Elah. That's just east of the interstate right there. One of the things that is a little difficult when you go to Israel, one half is modern and the other half is as it was. But you soon are able to start separating that. Uh, if you'll notice where it says Saul's camp, that is where Israel was camped. And then down on the bottom is where the Philistines were. That big field there is where Goliath came out and would challenge the armies of David of the armies of Saul every day until David, as a young man, uh, went and took the challenge. And of course, we know what happened there. That's the Valley of Elah. Anyway, oh, and then it, it shows where the Philistines fled. They fled along the interstate. I don't know if they caught a bus or a taxi or what. But, but anyway, uh, that's a photo taken from Azekah. Another picture there. So there on the left, that's where Saul's army was. And then in the valley, that's, that's where the challenge was. Uh, here's some fortifications that they have unearthed. Uh, so always seeing new archaeology when you go over there. So this is the first, this is the first place to go is Azeka, and as we're looking at it, Azeka is um, a little bit of history, has a little bit of history. Um, if you remember, the Lord gave Joshua the victory over the five kings at Gibeon, and he sent hailstones upon them, and it was as far as Azeka. so these hailstones were there. But Lachish really is an important one. That's the one you'll hear about. And, it, and again, it's, it's the idea of you feel like it's the last stand before Jerusalem and you can hear the drums and the marching and the soldiers and you can see the, the torches. 
And as we said before, uh, Lachish is um, about 29 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And it's in what they call the Shephela, which is the lowlands, uh, grasslands. And uh, we see a number of things here. So not only did Joshua defeat uh, the king and four other kings, but not soon after, he, Joshua captured Lachish. So Israel had Lachish. We do look at the history, and uh, the Judean king, Rehoboam, he's the first one to start the divided kingdoms. You remember that. He was Solomon's son. Well, he fortified Lachish uh, shortly after the death of Solomon. But somewhere around 701 B.C., and here we're, we're keying in on 586 B.C., that is when Judah goes into captivity. But before that, 701 B.C., King Sennacherib from Assyria captures Lachish, as did Nebuchadnezzar, and he's about to, if you will. And it's mentioned not only in the Bible, but it's also mentioned frequently in extra-biblical sources, sources outside of it, maybe even secular sources. And of course, this is good because this confirms what we believe in the truthfulness of the scriptures. So let me just read something here by Feinberg. He writes, Lachish is the modern Tel, which means mountain, Tel Ed-Duer, Azekah the modern Tel Ezekaria, and the Lachish letters, which are found in Lachish, they found pottery, and in pottery were these letters that were obviously written um, at the time of Zedekiah and probably right before the invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. The Lachish letters give a vivid picture of these events. The 21 ostraca, which were broken and then there's inscribed pottery, date from the time of this invasion. Letter 4 reads, We are watching for the smoke signals of Lachish because we do not see Azekah. This indicates that Azekah had already fallen. So here's perhaps an artist's drawing of the fortification. Notice this is what they do whenever there's a hill or a mountain, probably a hill, uh, they fortify it uh, with walls around it so, so the enemy has to come up and it's easier to fight the enemy on good ground. Uh, here we're taking a look at it. We get to walk up Lachish. And so you see the mound. And then here they have this um, sign. It's the testimony to approaching disaster the Lachish letters. And so they even have some fragments there that you can see. There's some of the fragments uh, taken from a, a museum. Here's what it says. In this room, some 20 potsherds were discovered bearing inscriptions in ink in ancient Hebrew. These letters are dated to the last years before the Babylonian invasion of the land of Israel beginning of the 6th century B.C., which would be very close to 586. Um, there's some more writing on it, but then this is what we find a prayer in letter 4. 
May God cause my Lord to hear this very day tidings of good. And now according to everything which my Lord has sent, this has your servant done. I wrote on the sheet according to everything which you sent to me. And as inasmuch as my Lord sent to me concerning the matter of Beit Harapid, there is no one there. As for Senate uh, Simachiah, uh, Shemaiah took him and sent him up to the city. And may my Lord be apprised that we are watching for the fire signals of Lachish, according to all the signs which my Lord has given, because we cannot see Azekah. So anyway, there's a, a distant picture of it. And there's a, an aerial of it. And some of the original stones there, and then some of the newer stones added. So that is Lachish. So all of this is believed to have fallen right before the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was being sieged and these other cities were being attacked by Nebuchadnezzar. And that's a good backdrop for what we're going to see now in 2 Kings 25 verses 3 through 12. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 25, verses 3 and following. So this would obviously be after the destruction of Azekah and Lachish. And it says, On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. If you remember, this siege had gone on for about two and a half years. Again, the fortified walls was a great fortification. So a ramp or a ramp wall, a siege wall had to be built. And this took about two and a half years. Now, part of that time, if you remember, the Egyptians came up. And so the Babylonians had to stop fighting Jerusalem and had to go take care of the Egyptians. But as soon as they were done, back they were. Now, why is this all happening in the first place? Of course, we know. We know the history. But what's the immediate, what's the immediate reasons? Well, if you remember, in 2 Kings 24, verse 20, it says, For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah, until he cast them out from his presence. And so this was because of rebellion against the Lord, including Zedekiah rebelling against him. And then it says, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now the reason why that was wrong was because God said, I am giving Judah and Jerusalem into his hands. Basically, if you want to live, then you need to submit to Nebuchadnezzar and even though that's what Jeremiah was saying, Zedekiah listened to the false prophets. And of course, he just not only provoked the anger of the Lord, he provoked the anger of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what's interesting about this famine, um, notice it wasn't a shortage of water. Why? Because of Hezekiah's tunnel. Remember, we talked about that. They took from, from the spring, the Kidron Spring, and they brought it in under the ground into 
the city so that if an, if an enemy came, they wouldn't have a supply of water and they couldn't cut off the supply of water to the city of Jerusalem. Well, they were well established with water, but after two and a half years, their food had been depleted and they were starving. And this is the idea of the famine. And by the way, that's exactly what we, what we see here. Now, I do want to say one other thing that's going to come up, and that is at this time the Lord was saying, um, look, if you stay in the city, you're going to die. Most people are going to die when Nebuchadnezzar comes through those walls. But he does talk about giving up and giving into the hand, surrendering early to Nebuchadnezzar. And what we're going to find out is when the people are finally exiled, those who survive, it's those who survive and those who already surrendered. In Jeremiah 38, it says, Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. Thus says the Lord, the city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. So the Lord was even encouraging the people to go out and surrender. And of course, that was to Zedekiah, but he would not. And even though he will die in peace, meaning a natural death, the sentence that will be placed upon him by Nebuchadnezzar is not a very good one. Well, we come now to verse 4, and here it is. Then the city was broken into. And by that, they got in through the wall. I'm not exactly sure what part of the wall or how much of the wall. Eventually, all of the wall was going to be destroyed. All they needed to do was get in there. And once they got in there, they were able to kill everyone, especially who was fighting. But notice it says, Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night, by way of the gate between the two walls, beside the king's garden, through the Chaldeans, though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by way of the Arabah. So a number of things there to talk about. Realizing that the fortification is gone, realizing that there's no hope, rather than stand there and fight to the death, they fled, and they fled by night. Now, you got to give it to them that they were somewhat stealthy. They were able to get out, get past the Chaldeans, and they were able to leave. Now, it says that they went by the way of Arabah. So this is kind of interesting. This is Zedekiah's escape. One of the things that I also want to say is that Jeremiah 39 says it wasn't just the men of war that left. It was also King Zedekiah. Uh, this is in chapter 39, verse 4. It says, when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, broke through the wall, they fled and went out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, 
and he went toward the Arabah. So here's what we have here, his escape route. This is uh, the city of David. Um, we see that in the blue and the pink, and then the yellow is the expansion by Hezekiah. Uh, and if you can look down at the very south, it says the lower pool and the king's garden. Uh, it's the ones with question marks behind it. It, it is kind of difficult to find and determine. Uh, someone even wrote an article and wrote, uh, uh, The King's Garden, A Lesson in Futility. But this is where some believe that it is. We'll kind of zoom in. So it's in the southern end, and it says, it says that they went out by the King's Garden. Okay, so that would be near the Pool of Siloam. All right, so we'll just kind of zoom in on there. So now if you remember, here was our drawing. And if you notice the blue line kind of in the, uh, the, the middle but towards the bottom, uh, you see that great Hezekiah's tunnel, and it comes out into the Pool of Siloam. So I'll kind of zoom in there. Well, right by the Pool of Siloam is where they think the king's garden was. We'll zoom in a little bit more. And, and then it says they went out by two gates. Well, no one really knows what two gates, and even sometimes the conjecture on where these gates were is up to discussion. But we have one on the west there, which was the valley gate. We have the refuse gate or the dung gate. And then there is even another gate there, the fountain gate. So they may have escaped this way. All right, having said that, so now you see Jerusalem, and it says they went towards Arabah. Well, what's interesting is today is if you ask anybody today in Israel today, uh, they will say that the Arabah is south of the Dead Sea. That would be this bottom one here. That's the Arabah. Uh, and the Arabah does mean, really, uh, the Jordan uh, Rift, okay? That's the follows the Jordan River, but in that day, uh, it's believed that they called the Jordan Rift the Arabah. Uh, there's a couple of scriptures, and even this context is going to, is going to show that. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29, you don't have to turn there, but it says, and the men went through the Arabah all the night. Now, this is a different, this is not King Zedekiah so that they crossed the Jordan. Well, if they're crossing the Jordan, Arabah is this center area. And then we're going to see that more of the context that this is probably what they mean. So they came out south of the city, and then they went east and maybe northeast to that area. Or at least that's where they were headed. Someone write, wrote, uh, by the way, from Bible Places uh, on the internet, a very excellent resource uh, for uh, not only pictures, but descriptions of these places. And he writes, today, Israelis refer to the Jordan Rift south of the Dead Sea as Arabah. But in 2 Samuel 2.29, it's clear that Arabah originally referred to the Jordan Rift between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. All right. Well, King Zedekiah fled with them. But what happened? Look at verse 5. 
But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. So they pursued the king. So I don't know if they saw the king. Maybe they weren't as stealthy as they thought they were. Or if when they realized the king wasn't there, they said he must have escaped. Anyway, they were able to somehow overtake them. Um, notice, if you will, the men of war. These are the kind of guys you don't want in your security guard. Uh, it says, when, when the king was apprehended, they took off. Well, they're there to guard the king with their lives. But they, they fled. And then did you notice in verse 5, they, they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And if you look at our map, you can see where Jericho is. It's somewhat east of Jerusalem, right by the Jordan River. So the Arabah was that central area of the Jordan Rift. Verse 6, then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And he passed sentence on him. So they were probably very easily able to capture him since he didn't have any military guys around him. Um, and they took him to Riblah. And they were going to take him before uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, this place, Riblah, uh, I don't have any pictures of Riblah, uh, but it is... North, north of Palestine, north of Israel, and it's up by the Euphrates River. And of course, we talked about the Battle of Carchemish. That's the area where Riblah is. And Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt and took that area, and that's where his headquarters is now. Well, he's going to take the king of Judah, the captured king of Judah, up there, and they're going to pronounce sentence on him. King Nebuchadnezzar is. We come to verse 7, and here we find out part of the sentence. The first part of the sentence was, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They made him watch, and then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. So the sentence was that his sons were going to be killed. Somewhat customary in those pagan times where you don't want to leave any would-be rivals to live and come after you in revenge. But the point here is that they made Zedekiah watch and then they removed his eyes. So the last thing that he saw with his eyes was his sons being slaughtered. And then they took him to Babylon. So he was taken to Babylon in bronze fetters, blind and bereaved of his sons. So even though it says he's going to die in peace, it's not really all that peaceful. And now... It shifts from Zedekiah to Jerusalem. And, you know, I found myself wanting to entitle this Zedekiah 
goes into captivity, but I needed to say Judah goes into captivity, and the people of Jerusalem go into captivity. And again, this is what they were warned of over and over. And the saddest thing is, is this is the land and the place that God had given them. This is the place where God met with them in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was. And he said, if you do not follow me, I will remove you from this place and this place will be destroyed. How sad. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most prominent events in the history of Israel, a, a negative event, if you will. We come to verses 8 and 12, and now Jerusalem is going to be besieged, or Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. This is in verses 8 through 12. By the way, here's a picture of Zedekiah. We looked at him last week. Um, and here's an, a drawing of them taking him to Babylon. Not really sure if you can see his eyes that are gouged out. I'm not trying to be morbid or anything, but I'm, I'm just trying to be consistent with the text. But here was the other part. Someone had uh, drawn... Uh, where his sons were killed, and he had to watch. And then that was the last thing he was going to see with his eyes. Anyway, um, they take him to Babylon. But in the meantime, now that the walls have been broken, the army has fled, uh, they're going in and they're going to just destroy it. And verse 8 says this, now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. So here comes this guy. He's in charge of the imperial uh, army, uh, the ones who guard the king. He comes on the scene somewhere along the line. I read that scholars believe that his name was called the chief butcher or the slaughterer. And he seems to fit that title pretty well. He was the captain of the king's guard and he came to Jerusalem to complete Jerusalem's captivity, spoils, and destruction. Not in that order. We find out what he did in verse 9. And, and, and notice here, if you will, it, he, he knew what he was doing. If, if he was going to destroy a city or if they wanted to destroy a city, he was the one that they would have doing it. And, and if, you, if you look at what he does, it's kind of a systematic thing to demoralize and to destroy. But let's not forget that the hand of the Lord is behind this. So... Even if he wasn't organized, the Lord was organizing it. And if you'll notice how it begins in verse 9, and he burned the house of the Lord. He burned the house of the Lord. This would have spiritually demoralized Judah. 
Uh, I think this was the worst of the worst. Even their captivity wasn't as bad as this. Even the burning of the king's palace wasn't as bad as this. Even as the burning of people's homes and killing people wasn't as bad as this. Can you imagine God's chosen people having this tremendous blessing of having the presence of God, being able to worship him and have his presence there and nowhere else? And now it is being burned and removed, just as he said that it would be. But also, too, there's some other things going on. There's this idea, really, if you will, almost of humiliation. These pagan countries and nations, when they conquered an, another nation, they said, our God is stronger than your God. That's exactly what they did. And so here is Yahweh, who looks defenseless, although he's not. He is in control. And just in case you're wondering, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to get his too, okay? Because the Lord is in control, and he wasn't defeated. And so we, we, we see this here, that the, what, what was finally, uh, what was prophesied so many times finally came to fruition. We see then it says the next phrase is the king's house. So the king's palace was burned. Um, this would be what? Removing all authority and administration. Zedekiah? Oh, he doesn't even have a place to live. In fact, he's not even there. In fact, he, can't even, he couldn't even walk there. He couldn't even find it because he's blind and none of his sons could sit on that throne. And so, again, demoralizing. And then finally, it says, in all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So thinking of maybe wealthy homes, important homes, administrative buildings, and all of this, he burned it all. He destroyed it all. Um, and, and the idea at that time, if you can imagine, if you lived on one hill and one fortification, and you were fighting someone else on another hill with fortification, you would do everything you can to destroy that, including the fortification, so that they wouldn't gang up on you anytime soon. This is what these nations did. Look at verse 10. Speaking of fortification, so all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And let me tell you, that's an incredible feat. You go over there and they still have uh, some of the large I mean, immense stones that were part of the wall uh, during the uh, uh, destruction of the Romans against Jerusalem in 72 AD. Uh, they have left some of them, and you see how big they are. And it's a, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, a tremendous feat to figure out how they got those blocks off the wall. Well, it's even a greater feat to wonder how they ever got those those stones up there in the first place. And you get to see some even underground. They have some that are so huge and immense. And it's, it's one of the wonders of uh, technology of how they were able to do it. And when you do look at the stones of the wall, it's incredible. You, if I was doing it, you'd, there'd be like a lot of peepholes and it wouldn't line up straight. But you can't see through that. I mean, they are so 
precise, and, and that's why they stay together. Um, and yet, this is what they destroyed. They had to destroy it. Otherwise, somebody else would move in there, or, or even uh, the, the men of the war would try to come back and do that. Now, eventually, what will happen? Well, eventually, they will be released from exile. Uh, Zerubbabel uh, will build the house of the Lord. Ezra will, will establish the priesthood, and Nehemiah will restore the wall. So that's, that's the future history, but that didn't happen yet. Not where we're talking about. And so, verse 10, so the armies broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Verse 11, then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. So, the people that survived, the people that haven't starved, the people that hadn't fought, the people that hadn't gotten in crossfire, they're alive, they're going. And the deserters, the deserters who, you know, prematurely left the city and went to the king of Babylon under the instruction of the Lord, um, they all were gathered together to exile into Babylon. But if you would, look at verse 12. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So not everybody went. And when I went to um, Israel and in our, our tour guide, that was one of the pieces of information that I, I found out. Uh, we were going through the book of Jeremiah, but we hadn't gone this far. And, and so I was, I, what? Why were there people there? And, and so you, you look here, and this is exactly why. One of the reasons is, is number one is Nebuchadnezzar only wanted the best. Hey, you're either going to help us or you're not going to survive. That's the way it was. And the poorest of the poor, or maybe the sick, maybe the handicapped, he didn't want anything to do with them, and so he left them there. But he left them there that they would till the ground, maybe try to eke out a living, maybe even eke out some produce. And of course, who would that go to? Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, this was one of those things that was uh, well thought out, uh, evilly well thought out. And, and the rest were taken to Babylon. That is the captivity of Judah. That is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, a couple of things I want to add this evening, and I mentioned this before, that at times you do have unbelievers say things that are true, that are true about God and true about his prophecies. And I did mention him, I mentioned the guard, and I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 40, where we see Nebuzaradan has, a, has something to say to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 40, let's look at verses 1 through 3. 
And it's kind of amazing. It kind of makes you sit back and scratch your head. You kind of wonder how this all came about. But at the end, it doesn't really matter. It's what he says is true. So Jeremiah 40, verse 1 says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, and captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah, when he had taken him bound in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Jeremiah never did go. Jeremiah uh, was unchained. And uh, believe it or not, Nebuzaradan had respect. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar had respect for Jeremiah. But here we go. Now, the captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God promised this calamity against this place. And the Lord has brought it on and done just as he promised because you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice. Therefore, this thing has happened to you. Isn't that incredible? I remember when we were going through Jeremiah and we came to this, it was like, wow. Well, there's a couple of things to ponder and think about. Um, did he believe in Judah's God? Not necessarily, probably not, since the Babylonians had their own gods to whom they prayed for victory over Judah. Uh, was the butcher showing remorse? Probably not. Um, was he trying to justify in some way what he had done? Maybe. I don't know. It's really hard to know what was going through his mind. And it's not to say that he's getting close to being converted. It very well could be that every nation who had gods thought, you better not upset your God. And so perhaps they were taking Yahweh and just putting him down as all of the other gods and saying, look, you messed up, you made your God mad, and this is what he did. But it seems more that they heard, they heard more. Uh, the Babylonians heard more, and perhaps they heard it from those who had deserted. Perhaps they heard it from uh, these exiles as they gathered, or perhaps they heard it from some of the early deported people like Daniel or Ezekiel. Now, does it make any effect? Does it have any effect on the captain here? Probably not. But does it have an effect? Well, it might. When you go through the book of Daniel and you look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, not so good in the beginning, but you remember what happens in Daniel chapter 4. When when Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy like an animal, but then comes to his senses. And he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand 
or say to him, what have you done? Wow, he understood who Yahweh was and the sovereignty. Was that a full conversion? It's hard to say. Uh, we don't know, but he was a lot closer than the captain was. But anyway, we, we find out that, that there's some understanding of this. And not only that, but, but it really could be from someone like Daniel. When we have the wise men come at the birth of Jesus, where did they find out about the king of the Jews? Most likely it would have been through Daniel. So Daniel had an influence there. I guess if there was any principle that we could draw is no matter in what circumstances you find yourself in, the Lord can use you and can use any circumstance, whether it be Daniel or whether it could be the Jewish people as they're being punished by the Lord. I will say this, it is a bit of a humiliation to be humiliated in front of the world like that. It's also humiliation because, again, people will say, your God must not be very strong at all. It's something for us to think about in our lives, to walk close with the Lord. People will say in the world, they will watch us and they will say, and they claim to be a Christian? Or they will say, well, there's not much proof of God or Christians who serve God by the way that you live. We pray that God, that that would never be said about us. And so we have to always remain faithful. We never need to take these things lightly. Israel and Judah took them lightly, and they would not return to the Lord. Well, another thing that I want to bring up this evening is a, it's very interesting. We kind of touched on it a little bit. You remember when we were talking about that he would see the king eye to eye? Well, we, we see that in Jeremiah. Now, if you would, take a look with me in Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 4. And, and, you know, you go through these passages in Jeremiah, and it's like, well, we could go here, or we could go there, or we could go there. I mean, he kept telling Zedekiah so many times. It says, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And that happened. He was taken to Riblah. Well, Ezekiel was also one of the ones who was deported. And in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13, this is what it says. I will also spread my net over him, speaking of Zedekiah, and he will be caught in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it, though he will die there. It's, it's almost a riddle. It's irony. You're going to see the king of Babylon, but you're not going to see Babylon. Why not? Because he had his eyes gouged out before he went to Babylon. And what we find here, once again, is God's wisdom. Uh, and and it's, not just, it's not just wisdom, but sometimes it is witty wisdom, ironic wisdom. 
the kind of wisdom that gets your attention and you go, aha. And uh, it reminds me of just a few weeks ago when we went through Jeconiah's curse, how that Jesus could fulfill the rightful throne through Joseph's legal line, though he wasn't the biological son of Joseph, and he could have the bloodline through Mary because she was his biological mother. So there was only one person that could have fulfilled that and bypassed Jeconiah's curse. And here, there's, there's really only one fulfillment here that could happen, that Zedekiah would see Nebuchadnezzar. He would also see his sons being slaughtered and then see no more and then be taken to Babylon. He would not see Babylon, though he would die there. So the incredible wisdom of God's word. And so there it is. This is this, this sad event. We're not done. Uh, the, the captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan, is not done. He's got more work to do. And there's a few more events that 2 Kings will talk about. Jeremiah talks about them. And then, so in about two weeks, I would say, we're probably going to conclude the study. But we're, we're not finished. But yet, this is it. This is the sad part. They had been warned over and over. They had been warned since Exodus that this could happen. And then through the prophets down through time. And in a way, if you're trying to understand a lot of what the prophets are saying, now not all that they say, but a lot of it is in reference to this. But another reference by the prophets is the future restoration, not only going back to Jerusalem, but also the millennial kingdom. It's incredible to see how much the millennial kingdom is prophesied in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is fulfilled completely. There still are prophecies to be fulfilled. But with all the prophecies that you have fulfilled with such perfection, should we even dare doubt in a moment, we would be wrong. Father, that's why we thank you for making us students of your word. The more we study your word, the more we get to know you and your character and your faithfulness. Father, we see what has happened with Israel. Our hearts do go out to Israel. Even today, we pray for Israel and what they're going through. And Father, we too look forward to that time when you restore Israel in a relationship with you as you enter into the millennial kingdom with Christ on the throne. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.